0: And I'm excited about the sermon. It's either really good um, because I noticed both Taylor and Annika prayed for me. So either the spirit's really moving or it's really bad. And it just needed extra prayer this morning. Uh, But I'm grateful for the prayers. Uh, And I'm excited. I'm going to start with a story. I didn't tell Jay this. It's it's a story I've told before. um, And I honestly don't even remember the ending anymore. But it captures what I want to do with our message this morning. Uh, Most of you know that I grew up in a family that loved Disney. Uh, My my mom's happiest place on the planet is Walt Disney World. She just loves it. On her 70th birthday, our whole family went to Walt Disney World to celebrate her birthday. She just loves Disney. And so I've been there a handful of times, and we were there back when Jay was probably four or five. He's a little bit older than that now. And we were in the Magic Kingdom. If you've ever gone to Disney World and been to the Magic Kingdom, and you stay up to go to the night parade, they do this light parade, and it's amazing... And it culminates in this fireworks show around Cinderella's Castle. And they've just gotten more and more advanced with technology, which we'll talk about technology even today. And they have this amazing light show, and they've got all this music choreographed with the fireworks, and there's, and there's things spoken during the presentation, and at the climactic moment, at least, they probably have a new one now that it's 50 years of Disney World, right? So they probably have a new show. But, but in the climactic moment, back about eight, or eight years or so ago, Tinkerbell comes flying down. This lady, like a real person, Tinkerbell, flying down through the sky on this cord to the castle. And you hear the lyrics of that famous song, when you wish upon a star, your dreams come true. Anything your heart desires will come to you. And I remember hearing those words, and then there was another voiceover, and I don't remember exactly what it said, but it said something along the lines, if you want it. If you want it and you believe hard enough, it's yours. And Jay's on my shoulders, right? It's tons of people. are just watching the show. Jay's on my shoulders, and he leans down, and he says, Dad, is it true? Like, is it true, Dad? Anything I want, if I just believe, it's mine? And I have this moment of like, man, we're enjoying the show. <laughs> I'm just enjoying Disney. Disney is what Disney is, but my inner pastor's going off like crazy. And so I, I didn't want to ruin the fun of the moment, so I said, I said Jay, just watch, just, watch the, just watch the end and we'll talk later. <laughs> and so the show ends and I remember pulling Jay down and he was little, so I got down so I could look him in the eyes. And I honestly, this is the part I forget. I don't remember what I said. It, I'm, it had something to do with, with Jesus. I know that. I mean, just for the sake of this morning, write a, just imagine it's the greatest thing a father could say to a son. That's what I said to Jay. Just imagine that. But that's not really the point of the story. The point of the story is to illustrate that we live in a modern-day Babylon. (laughs) And we're in this series called Home, and we've talked a lot about finding our home in God, but now we're talking about living in exile. What happens when you live in Babylon, but God has come and said, you're going to be there to Jeremiah? You're going to be there 70 years. So seek the welfare of the city, because it's going to be a few generations. You're not going home for a long time, if ever, right? Babylon is now your home. And so last week we talked about Jeremiah and his and his lament, really, but what he had to say to the people. But I said, people got a little too good at doing what Jeremiah said. Jeremiah said, make Babylon your home. People got too good at making it their home. So God sent some other prophets to guide his people and shepherd his people. And so the next few weeks we're going to talk about Daniel. You'll see why it's important in this series. And I think I'm eventually going to get to Ezekiel. If you've ever looked at Ezekiel, that is one wacky book, folks. That's all I'm going to say. But I think I'm going to try to do one week with Ezekiel just because it's fun. But we're going to be in Daniel for a few weeks. The uh, Part of Daniel's tricky. The dreams and the visions can be really hard, but the stories are super easy. I mean, that's why we teach them in Sunday school. It's super easy to understand. They might be harder, which we'll try to do, apply them in our lives today. I think we can do that pretty well this morning. But if you begin to read Daniel, if you take some time in the next few weeks as we're with Daniel to read Daniel, you'll see that Daniel is all about how to be a Jew in a culture that doesn't want you to be Jewish. That's what it's about. How to live in a pagan world without becoming a pagan. Or as we move it into our times, how to be Christian in a culture that doesn't want you to be Christian. I mean, that's really the question we're going to ask this morning, what it means to be a Christian in a culture that doesn't want you to actually live according to the Jesus way. That's what we're going to talk about. And I'm going to talk about three kind of high-level things this morning, but I think it'll all make sense. And I, I think it's important, and even though we're going to probably be pretty high-level and maybe not get as specific as we could if we just focused on one of these things, I think there'll be enough to swim with And I even think there'll be a little bit of homework if you choose to engage. So if you want to flip to Daniel chapter 1, we're going to work our way through chapter 1 this morning. In the third year, so I, I told you there were three rounds of exile. This is one of the earlier rounds. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He was in Babylon. He wanted more. So he comes to Jerusalem and he besieges the city. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Let me say a few things here before we keep reading. This is one of the reasons the Jews struggled when they were in exile. Because most of the ancient world really was polytheistic. They had a pantheon of gods. I mean, Judea, I mean Abraham does something unique when he... When he when he becomes kind of the father of this monotheistic faith, to say there's only one God. It's pretty radical. And, and it, ma- it mattered because if you were a polytheistic person, if you believed in many gods, then you could have a childhood God. But as you got older, you could add other gods if you wanted. You could stop, follow, that ah, God's no good to me anymore. I'm going to follow this God. Or, or if something happens like this, where Babylon comes in and exiles you from your home, then you could say, well, Babylon's gods are obviously stronger than my gods. I'm going to worship these gods instead of my gods. But the Jews can't do that because the Jews believe there's only one God. And they remain faithful to Yahweh. That's part of the pressure that they experience. That's part of what makes them distinct and peculiar. Verse 3, then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people. This is, if you study Assyrian exile and Babylonian exile, it's one of the things that the Babylonians did differently. So they bring in people from the royal family. They bring in nobility. They bring in youth the best of the cream of the crop. I mean, basically the use of DeKalb County. They bring them in, 17 to 19 years old, no blemish, good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. And what happens? They teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. They teach them not the ways of Yahweh, They teach them the ways of Babylon. That's what they teach. They train them in it. And the king assigned them, this is going to become the drama in our story today, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate. You get to eat from the king's table and drink from the king's cup. And then they were to be educated for three years in the ways of Babylon, and at the end of that time they were going to stand before the king. And among these are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now you know Daniel... He was also then renamed, he was given a Babylonian name, Belteshazzar, but you know the other three probably if you grew up in Sunday school as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Story of Daniel. Beginning anyway. Let me start here with these names. Now if you get in the scholarship, I read probably three or four different authors with different opinions on the Babylon. The, The Jewish names are easy, we know what they mean, they're super easy. But the Babylonian names are a little bit trickier. From what we know from history, but but here's one person's shot at it, and it's helpful for this morning. Daniel's name means God is my judge. But listen, he's renamed by the Babylonians Belteshazzar, which means probably Bel's prince. Bel is a Babylonian god, right? Polytheism. Hananiah was named Yahweh is gracious. That's what Hananiah means, but he's renamed Shadrach, which probably means friend of the king a friend of the empire mishael means who is like god Meshach, his new name is probably guest of the empire guest of the king i hope you see what they're doing here and azariah means yahweh has helped but abednego means likely servant of nebo nebo being a babylonian god One author says, it's obvious that Ashpenaz is intent on erasing their Jewish identity and transforming them into friends and servants of the Babylonian Empire with its pantheon of patron gods. The self-identity derived from a name, which is what we call ourselves, forms us in very significant ways. Again, with our big question, how do we be Christian in a culture that doesn't want us to be Christian? Well, here... The Babylonians don't want them to be Jewish, so the first thing they do is try to change their identity by changing their names. Now, I talk about this a lot because I think it's so significant, especially for those of you in the younger generations. But in modern-day Babylon, the powers that be don't want you to be a Christian, and so they attack your identity. And I will say, in modern-day Babylon, the enemy is craftier. Because it's not just about changing your name anymore. They've actually, the accuser has worked hard and actually been unfortunately successful into making many of us think that we can actually name ourselves. So it's exhausting. So many of us are tired because we don't know what makes us significant or worthy. And so we're just trying to prove ourselves and please others, and it's exhausting. And we don't know who we are, and we're as confused as we've ever been. So I'm not going to go deep dive into Christian identity, but I want to say a few things. If you want to read more about this, I'll recommend two books, though I'm sure you could recommend books to me. I mean, so many books have been written on this because it's so important. But when I was in college about 20 years ago, I read a book by Brennan Manning called Abba's Child. Love that book. It's so important for my Christian walk. Uh, Manning talks about how we are children of God. And how, how, how it would change us if we looked into the mirror and saw ourselves as the disciple whom Jesus loves. <laughs> what if that was our core identity? It's a good book. Probably about eight years ago, one of my mentors in the church was walking with me and decided it would be good for me to read another book. It was a book by David Benner called The Gift of Being Yourself. Another great book on identity in Christ, The Gift of Being Yourself. Two books you could take a deeper dive in, but if you're not into reading books, but you love Scripture, then just read Romans 8. If what I'm saying to you about identity is resonating, read Romans 8 and read it again and read it again and read it again and read it. Memorize Romans 8 and learn who you are in Christ. But let me read a couple paragraphs. It's really, I think, important to read this just to give you a foundation for what I'm talking about with identity. This comes from David Benner's book. Christians affirm a foundation of identity that is absolutely unique in the marketplace of spiritualities. Whether we realize it or not, our being being is grounded in God's love. The generative love of God was our origin. The embracing love of God sustains our existence. The inextinguishable love of God is the only hope for our fulfillment. Love is our identity and our calling, for we are children of love, created from love, of love, and for love. Our existence makes no sense apart from divine love. Neither knowing God nor knowing self can progress very far unless it begins with a knowledge of how deeply we are loved by God. Until we dare to believe that nothing can separate us from God's love, nothing that we could do or fail to do, nor anything that could be done by anyone else to us. That's what Romans 8 hits home on. Until we dare to believe that nothing can separate us from God's love, we remain in the elementary grades of the school of Christian spiritual transformation. In order for our knowing of God's love to be truly transformational, it must become the basis of our identity. This is where we start. Our identity is who we experience ourselves to be, the I, the letter I, the I each of us carries within. This is the last sentence. An identity grounded in God would mean that when we think of who we are, the first thing that would come to mind is our status as someone who is deeply loved by God. Which is exactly why on many occasions you have heard me say, raising my son as a Christian in modern-day Babylon. If you ask Jay who he is, he will tell you, my name is Jay Kinnett. I am the son of Jeff and Kami Kinnett. I am a child of God and I am deeply loved and forgiven. That's who I am. That's who we all are. And you will learn this if you haven't already if you don't know who you are. If you don't make the basis of your identity God's love, you will become what others pay you to be or who they tell you to be. And I want you to hear me say this again. The goal isn't for you to find or discover your own identity. You can say this one of two ways. The goal is either to find Jesus or let Jesus find you, however you want to think about it. (laughs) But find Jesus and let him name you. Let him give you your identity. Let him show you your truest self. One of you said this. We talk a lot about love and identity in our discipleship pathway formed. And one of you said this. I wrote it down. The identity we're all chasing has already been given to us in Christ. It's good news. That identity that you're chasing already given to you in Christ. So you have nothing to hide, nothing to fear, nothing to prove, and no one to please. It's good news. Well, let's keep going. Daniel, that's the first big thing we'll look at. Now we're going to go to Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. We're going to get into the, the drama of the chapter. But Daniel resolved, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. There's some conversation in scholarship circles exactly what, but for the sake of this morning, his Jews were supposed to eat a kosher diet, a kosher menu, and this must not have been kosher. So he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him to not defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion. It is amazing. I just see this more and more and more. God is a God who is gracious and compassionate. It is amazing how often God moves and stirs through compassion. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, the one who made this diet, this menu for you, that he's going to see that you're not eating as well as the other youths and you're going to be in worse condition and it's going to endanger me. So verse 11, I think this is important. This is part of Daniel's brilliance. Daniel says to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs has assigned. So it's not the chief anymore, but it's clear the chief has had compassion and favor with Daniel. And so Daniel goes to the steward and he's like, hey, got an idea for you. I'm getting all this food from the king's kitchen. It's really good. I don't want to eat it. How about you eat it? And you let me eat veggies and water. And the steward's like, "Ah." king's food i'll take that the steward doesn't get to eat that so i think it's part of how daniel pulls this off so you got daniel hananiah mishael and azariah daniel says give us 10 days give us 10 days just give us veggies and water and then you can hold up our appearance with the appearance of the other youths and then you can do you can do uh, deal with us according to what you see so the steward listens he enjoys the king's kitchen for 10 days he tests them in ten days, and after ten days, some of you will love this, they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh. That's in the Bible, I'm just telling you, that's what it says. And the steward took away their food and the wine, and they were, they, they were to drink, and he gave them veggies. And as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom and Daniel and understanding and all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, the came brought all of them before Nebuchadnezzar, And Nebuchadnezzar speaks with them, and among all of them, there's none. There's none like Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. They stand before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquires, he finds them ten times better than all of his magicians and enchanters. And we find out Daniel remains serving in the government for a long time. So a few things here. Daniel denies himself some amazing food from the king's kitchen. Uh, I'll come back to this at the end, but I want to say this now. Daniel says no to something he could have had in order to allow God to give him something that he could never earn or acquire on his own. I mean, part of the story of Daniel, you'll see this, is the supernatural intervention of God. Daniel says no. He draws a line. He has resolve. He says no to food. He could eat really good food, and as a result, God gives him unbelievable wisdom, makes him healthy. I mean, it's just, it's really important. And I mentioned that, that these four men go through this three-year training in the ways of Babylon, but it's pretty clear as you, as you read through the story that they, they have already been trained up in the ways of Yahweh. I have a feeling that the voice of Isaiah and Jeremiah, those voices are resonating, the other prophets resonating in Daniel, these four men's ears, as they maintain covenant loyalty to Yahweh in a foreign land. You will see that Daniel and his friends are determined to only go so far. They will adapt where they can. They will accept their Babylonian names. They will get a degree from this three-year training program. But they will resist where they must. And Daniel and his friends draw the line at this diet. That's where they choose to draw the line. So what I want to do is as we, as we kind of bring... So, so in Daniel's day, right, we're talking about kosher. Whatever, I don't know everything that was going on, but there was probably too much pork. I don't know if it's possible, but too much bacon. Too many, too many lobster tails. Too much shrimp. Daniel's like, we can't eat it. It'll, it'll defile us. It, it, it'll, it'll mess with us. Now, that doesn't translate into our world because maybe you've read Mark chapter 7, 14 to 23. <laughs> Jesus says, it's not what goes into your body that defiles you because it's just coming out. <laughs> and Mark says, well, Jesus made all foods clean. I mean, in the New Covenant, because Jesus, you got to understand, but because Jesus is the fulfillment of everything, things change when he shows up. And so Mark says, but Jesus says in Mark, all food's clean. It's what comes out of your heart. That's what we got to deal with. That's why you need a new heart. That's why we talked about Jeremiah last week in the new covenant. I I need to write the law on your heart because you need a new heart. That's what you need. That's what Jesus says. So so if the story ultimately isn't about giving up bacon or proving that vegetables are healthier, then what's it about? What does it mean for us to maintain our covenant identity in a pagan culture, to maintain covenant faithfulness, covenant loyalty? What does it mean for a Christian to refuse to eat from the king's kitchen in our day? Well, the first thing I'll say is that, like Daniel, we maintain our allegiance to the one true God. Now, the Old Testament calls this God Yahweh. In fact, one of my favorite, I won't read this now, but I've I've done this before, but one of my favorite chapters in the Old Testament is Isaiah 45. You can read it on your own. But in Isaiah 45, you will see again and maybe like four times, God is speaking. He says, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, and I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no other. And then you get to verses 21 and 22. You can look this up on your own. I am God, and there is no other, and at my name every knee will bow and tongue confess. It's like the most, the most Yahweh-centered chapter in the Old Testament. And what does Paul do in Philippians 2? Read Philippians 2, verses 1 to 11, but focus in on verses 9 to 11. Paul says, with Isaiah 45 echoing in his mind, at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. And every tongue confessed. So, as Christians, we follow that pattern. Paul had no problem quoting the Old Testament. And everywhere you saw Yahweh, he was fine to put Jesus. See, I mean, it's amazing when you study what, what the New Testament authors were doing. We maintain our allegiance to Jesus. One God and one only. Now, our God is Trinitarian, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We sang all of that this morning. But we maintain our allegiance to Christ. So what is the king's chef cooking in modern day Babylon? Well, I thought about this. I think there's a lot of things I could say about what the king's chef is cooking. But grant me this this morning. You might have more to add. I get it. But but for the sake of this morning, I submit to you that the king's chef is cooking mostly a menu of consumerism with fear and power baked into that thing. I mean, I grew up in the Midwest. We had casseroles galore at church banquets. Just... It's a casserole of consumerism, fear, and power. It's just all mixed together, right? That's what it is. Now, I, I hope you know about consumerism. I mean, if there's any way that modern day Babylon has attacked our identity, it is that you and I, first and foremost, begin to think of ourselves as consumers. Just imagine what that's done to your psyche through the years, over and over again. You're a consumer. You're a consumer. What do the consumers want? You're a consumer. And modern, it wears you down. <laughs> it shapes, it, 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 it deforms your identity. You and I are encouraged to make our consumer desires the center of the world. And what that does, it, re- it reduces all of our experiences of the world, including all the people in it, to instruments and resources. And what does a diet like that do to your body? Well, I submit to you that it heavily challenges your identity of a child of love. It challenges it because you and I are told in the Bible that we are worthy and significant because God loves us. That's what I read earlier. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to plead that you're worthy and significant because God loves you. But what does consumerism say? Well, you're worthy and significant if you've had good experiences probably better than your neighbor's. And you have good stuff. Part of the problem of eating a diet of consumerism is it makes life a game to win rather than a gift to be lived. Life is better when it's a gift, a gift of grace from Jesus. But consumerism makes it a game to be won. And you see it play out in our culture. This is one of the reasons why, at large, our culture in modern-day Babylon worships celebrities. We have, a ton, we have a pantheon to choose from. But deep down inside, we believe that whoever consumes the most has to be the best, right? They're winning the game. They have the coolest houses and the greatest vacations. So for some reason, we just care what they say about everything. I mean, it's just, it's, it's modern-day Babylon. Now, I, I, we could talk about fear and power on their own, but I, I mean, just this morning, to, to streamline it, let's think about it part of this casserole. Fear is kind of a subset of consumerism. How does it play together? Well, I think this mixture of consumerism and fear makes other people who are consuming what you want competition. So it feeds this crazy narrative in America of scarcity. I mean, we live in the most abundant country that has ever existed in humanity, and we're afraid there's not enough. I don't know, I mean, I don't know everything that was going on with the toilet paper shortage a year ago, but that's part of it. I got to get enough toilet paper from my bathroom for four years. I don't care if you have any. I'm a consumer, and I got here first, and you are competition, and I'm going to buy it before you do. It's hard to be a person to love if you're a consumer. <laughs> I mean, what comes out of the king's kitchen is a constant serving up of fear. Everything served to you has a label on it—hundred percent fear, <laughs> filled with. I mean, fear is the first ingredient. And what happens to your body when you eat this diet? You eat from this menu. Well, I would submit to you that a lot of what Jesus taught just goes right out the window, because now in this, in in modern day Babylon, people are a threat to your happiness. And what's most important is you being happy and getting what you want, right? And so now people are, is that good for your soul? If you were made for love and people are a threat, is that good for you? It's not good for your soul. It's dangerous. And I was listening to somebody talk and they were saying, and right now in in our modern day Babylon, I mean, they didn't use that language, but but, but the average American make, wakes up each morning with a mindset of a scarcity, and, and, and we all start our day with two questions. What am I supposed to be afraid of today, and whose fault is it? That's, I mean, that's how we've been schooled. What am I supposed to be afraid of today, and whose fault is it? And we're, we're learning that living on this diet is toxic, and it's poisoning, and it's exhausting. It malforms our soul. And I also think that's why I talked about lament. I only did one week. Thank you. I only did one week. But I said lament is good for your soul. I talked about lament because we're learning that fear costs more than grief. Our, col- our culture isn't wired that way, but we're learning. That's why, I mean, that's why we're so sick on the inside. So let me say this to you, and then I'll, I'll move on to power. But when someone tries to change your mind or lead you, or get your attention using fear, I want you to feel free to be deeply insulted because you're better than that. And you deserve better than that. You deserve better than leaders who lead you with fear. And I want you to be looking for people who get your attention by being courageous and living with integrity. Doesn't that sound better? Look for people like that. Follow people like that. Don't eat the fear coming from the king's kitchen. Take it off your menu. Push push the plate back. Now another part of the casserole of consumerism is power. And even more of what Jesus taught goes out the window. Because in this casserole of consumerism, we're taught that other people are commodities to use. So this one might be a little bit harder to get your mind around. And it's okay. I've, tried, I've done a series on power. I tried to bring this up a ton in our series on Revelation two summers ago. I tried to contrast for you beast power and lamb power so you can see the difference. But, but this theme of power and empire in Babylon runs all the way through the Bible. And there's all kinds of pressure on the people of God because of it. And really what it boils down to is that the nations who are rebelling against God, want the right to rule and to shape history according to their own agenda. That's what they want to do. And maybe the loudest statement against that is Psalm 2. It's not an accident that Psalm 2 is the second psalm. It's really important. And it's one of the most quoted psalms. I think Psalm 110 may be the most. But Psalm 2, maybe the second most, I don't know, maybe the most, in the New Testament. It's really important. And what is happening in Psalm 2 The father is saying the only one who has the right to reign and rule and shape history according to their will is my son. (laughs) And so the nations try to take for themselves what only belongs to the son, and and, and the father laughs at them. Oh, you fools. (laughs) No, that, that, that belongs only to my son. Now, that's the big story of empire, but I think that seeps its way into our personal lives. And we can think, well, power is the answer, and so I've got to get more power. But we've been schooled in the ways of Babylon, and we think, I'm going to go and get power in the way the world works, in the ways of Babylon, and then when I get power over others, I will use it for good. But what we don't understand is that if you go after power in the ways of Babylon, it will deform your soul. And by the time you get the power, you're just another Caesar. You're just another Nebuchadnezzar. It's a casserole of consumerism and fear and power. And it's hard to feed on a diet of consumerism, fear, and power and feed on a diet of faith, hope, and love at the same time. What does Jesus say? You can't serve both God and mammon. In the life of God's people, there will always be a remarkable reversal of values. The people of God will prize what the world calls pitiable, and we will suspect what the world values in modern-day Babylon. And we're going to talk about some of these virtues in our series. We prize humility. We prize patience. We prize love and kindness. And since we're talking about fear and power, let me say we prize weakness. Now, we don't seek it, but we prize it so that when it comes, we see its value and we understand what it's doing in our lives. The patterns of reversal so that we're free. We're free of empire. We're free of Babylon. We aren't controlled by power or fear or success or comfort or recognition. Like Daniel, like Paul, we're free. And we're content in all circumstances. We don't need them or want them. We're content with God. Now, if we have them, Daniel had a lot of power. (laughs) I mean, he's basically number two in the empire. If power comes your way and you didn't acquire it in the ways of Babylon... (laughs) Well, then, you know, it's good, it's good, it's great, I got it. Doesn't doesn't make me more or less, I just have it. God has me here for a reason. What's Esther say? Maybe God has me here for a reason. If we don't have power, we don't, we, we, we're just content. Whenever circumstance we're in, we're content. Because why? Because Jesus Christ is Lord right now. And that's why we're content. And We learn. We learn to not be controlled by the world's values. And we learn from Daniel, Daniel and his friends that if we refuse the fare of the empire's propaganda, it will be evident that we are far healthier. We are healthier than those who are eating from the king's kitchen. And maybe, just maybe, we will be a people who are, what do we talk about from time to time? Calm, content, wise, and unafraid. Now this casserole, this menu is everywhere, but you don't have to eat from the king's kitchen. You can push your plate back like Daniel. You can say, I'm not going to feed on those lies, and I'm not going to eat that stuff. That is not my diet. My diet is not consumerism, fear, and power. My diet is faith, hope, and love. I'm not going to eat everything that comes from the king's kitchen. And, And I want you to think about this, and think about this this week. Don't judge yourself. Just pay attention. If what you're feeding on makes it hard for you to have faith, hope, and love, then push back the plate. Resolve like Daniel, I need a different diet. (laughs) Feed on faith, hope, and love. Last thing, I want to talk a little bit about fasting. I, I love fasting. Daniel drew a line, and he knew where to draw the line, and he drew it behind the scenes. And he, in a sense, decided to fast from the king's kitchen and eat something else. I think fasting is really important. I I actually had quit fasting for about a year and a half because with the shutdown, I felt like we were fasting from everything anyway. But I'm back. I'm back to fasting. This week got me back at it. And you can fast in so many different ways. But fasting is learning to say no to God so that you, or learning to say no to something so you can say yes to God. We always say yes to God. Learning to say no to something that you're allowed to have so that you can say yes to God for something greater that you could never just have on your own. That's what's happening with Daniel and his friends. And I want to say this, say this to all of us, I think we all need to hear this, but primarily to those of you who are probably, I don't know, just younger, just younger generations, especially our students. It is easier to say no to things you have never tasted than to say no to temptations once you've tasted them. So I guess I could say this to all of us. If you know anybody who's either 10 years older, or maybe it's better to say 10 years farther along the Jesus journey, because sometimes age doesn't matter. But listen to people who are older than you, that you trust. Listen to people you trust. And when they say don't look, don't look. When they say don't visit that website, don't visit that website. Your friends say, have you seen that? You say, nope. And trust the people that you trust. Because it's healthy for your soul. It's easier to say no to something you've never said yes to. But many of us have said yes to a lot of things we wish we hadn't, right? I'm not alone in that. So what do we do? I mean, it's not hopeless. But this is where fasting becomes a training tool for us. Jesus fasted, we fast. And there's a lot of things that we can fast from, but I want to extend my metaphor this morning. Most of what is served from the king's kitchen comes on the dishes of technology. We love technology for all the reasons that I've said. It makes our life easier, and it gives us more power. It makes us comfortable, it makes our life easy, and it makes us feel safe. It's probably, we're probably not as safe as we think. But everybody I talk to knows we all have a problem with technology. We don't know what to do about it, and if we're honest, we don't even know that we want to do anything about it. And of course, the problem is not in technology, it's in us. And that is why I think technology may be the most important fast we can engage in in modern-day Babylon. There's a lot of ways you can fast this week from technology, social media, maybe streaming systems, whatever. But maybe as a church we corporately agree for the next seven, or Daniel did ten days, maybe the next ten days, you think of some way you're consuming technology. I I realize I've been consuming too much technology since this all began. (laughs) Some way you're consuming too much, and you agree with God to fast from technology. Technology isn't inherently wrong, but the problem is that what's in our hearts is what defiles us, and it's still there. That's why we walk this Jesus journey. He's cleaning us out. He's showing us what it means to live out love, but we still have some sin we need to confess and repent of. And if we, if, and if we don't put, to use Andy Crouch's language, technology in its proper place, then what defiles us is just going to come out in our use of technology. And so much of what we eat in modern-day Babylon from the king's kitchen comes to us on the plate of technology. So I'm going to throw this up here. I threw this up a few years back. This is from Andy Crouch's book. It's in the library. Uh, TechWise family. You might not agree with everything he says, but I like this stuff a lot. I'm going to let you think about this as you think about fasting from technology. Because I think maybe it's too much to be like, well, what do I do about... This is what I mean, high-level Maybe it's too much to do anything about consumerism and fear and power this week. Just try to notice it. But you, I think if you can get technology under control in your life, it will set you up to deal with some of these bigger things. But if you don't get technology put in its proper place, you're just like on an IV from the king's kitchen and you don't even know it. I mean, it's just coming into your veins. It's not good for your soul. So, Technology is in its proper place when it helps us bond with the real people we have been given to love. It's out of its proper place when we end up bonding with people at a distance like celebrities whom we will never meet. Technology is in its proper place when it starts great conversations. It's out of its proper place when it prevents us from talking with and listening to one another. And if you want these, you can email me or, again, you can check out the book. It's not very expensive. Technology is in its proper place when it helps us take care of the fragile bodies we inhabit. It's out of its proper place when it promises to help us escape the limits and vulnerabilities of those bodies altogether. Technology is in its proper place when it helps us acquire skill and mastery of domains that are the glory of human culture. When we let technology replace the development of skill with passive consumption, something has gone terribly wrong. Technology is in its proper place when it helps us cultivate awe for the created world we are part of and responsible stewarding. It's out of its proper place when it keeps us from engaging the wild and wonderful natural world with all our senses. And finally, technology is in its proper place only when we use it with intention and care. If there's one, this is Andy Crouch speaking, if there's one thing I've discovered about technology... It's that it doesn't stay in its proper place on its own. What do I always say? You'll never drift into the Jesus life. Much like my children's toys and stuffed creatures and minor treasures, it finds its way underfoot all over the house and all over our lives. If we aren't intentional and careful, we'll end up with a quite extraordinary mess. So I think I said this last time too, but you don't have to become Amish. But you do need to make wise decisions with how you feast, (laughs) what you eat, and the utensils you use, the plates it comes on. Learn to say no to things you can have in this consumer culture so that you can say yes to things that only God can give you. And feed on faith, hope, and love. Again, if what you're feeding on makes it hard for you to have faith, hope, and love, push back the plate. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we We talked about kind of three big things here as we we continue to think about what what does it mean to be a Christian in a a modern-day Babylon that doesn't really want us to be Christian. (laughs) What does that mean? It means that we need to know who we are. Jesus, I I think it's key for every single one of us, wherever we're at on our spiritual journey, that we would know that we are loved by you, that you went to the cross for each single one of us. That it is your love for us that held you to the cross, that you took our place, that you allowed evil to do its worst to you so that we could be forgiven and resurrected. So Jesus, help us to know who we are. Give us wisdom and insight to become people who are calm, content, wise, and unafraid so that as we live in modern-day Babylon, we have eyes to see the script that consumerism is selling us. That we can look at people who are trying to lead us with fear and say, no, I'm too good. I'm I'm better than that. God loves me too much. Don't treat me that way. So that we can get a handle on power and understand that we are made in the image of God. Jesus holds all the power, but you give us power. And we are meant to use power in the name of love to benefit others. And if it means that we are to lay down our power so that others have life, we do that. We don't hold on to power. We lay it down in the name of love because that's what you do. Help us to get a healthy relationship with power. And help us to get a healthy relationship with technology. I, I, I do pray that we would all be daring enough to find some way to fast from technology this week. In spirit of God, we ask that you would fill us, that we would be healthier in 10 days. We would be surprised that somehow veggies and water are all we need. <laughs> We're healthier than our neighbors because we have put technology in its proper place. Jesus, we want to wake up each morning and declare that you and you alone are Lord and that that is really good news. It's in your name we pray.